Well, good morning. You have me back again for one week until Mike does return. And uh, I don't know if any of you saw in the news this morning, in the paper, it seems like he could have just stayed right here in Topeka and found his elk. There was an elk, uh, it looked like a pretty big one, right around I-70 in McVicker. And I'm not sure which day of the week that was, but uh, I don't know where they come from to turn up here around Topeka, but didn't have to go out and suffer through the snow and freezing and everything like that. I'm not sure if it would have went over too well to shoot an elk in Topeka, but, but there would have, would have at least seen one. I'm not sure if they've even seen any out there, have they? So might have done better to just stay here. <laughs> well, um, today I'm going to try to address an issue that some of you may wonder, why are we talking about this in church? Why are we talking about the environment and how Christians should respond to the environment in a church setting? Well, I will say that this is probably one of the biggest issues that's confronting us today and having the greatest impacts on our homes, on our personal lives at home, on our businesses, on our communities, on our national security, on so many things that Christians need to be equipped to understand what is going on and what our proper role is in terms of what does the Bible teach us in this area. And a lot of us would like the Bible to just give us straight answers to everything. But this is an area where we've got to dig kind of deep to try to figure out what does the Bible tell us about our Christian responsibilities towards the environment. And today we're going to try to answer this question but we're going to try to answer some others, too, and I'll, I'll show you what some of those other questions are in just a minute. But before that, I want to pray. Lord, I do thank you for this church body, for this great group of believers that just put so much of their trust and faith in you and, and not in the world and not in their own works and strength. Lord, I pray that you'll open hearts and minds here today to uh, teach us what we need to know about this important area and how it's affecting our lives and what we can do as Christians, what we should do when we need to stand firm and resist as well. So teach us, Lord, and help us to be better equipped to deal with this in our personal lives and in our communities. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, here's some additional... Well, first let me say this. Why am I teaching about this subject? And it is kind of a follow-up to last week, which was about just the awesomeness of God's creation and how his glory is revealed in it because we're still talking some about the creation and how we deal with that creation. But why am I teaching about this? Well, I've worked in the environmental field for over 30 years and I happened to, I, I was the head of the environmental program for Transworld Airlines for about nine years before they went bankrupt. And since then, I've for 20 years been the director of the Bureau of Waste Management for the state of Kansas. And in this position, I get a lot of insight into what's going on nationally. I am on a national board. In fact, I'm going to Washington, D.C. next Sunday uh, to participate in a meeting back there. And I sit around a lot of these policymakers. I hear what they say. I hear what they're planning. I get a feel for their way of thinking. And it's scary. And you're going to see a little bit of that today in what I'm presenting. But we do have responsibility as well, and you're going to hear that today, too. 
So here's some additional questions that I hope we'll come away with an understanding of today, in addition to the big question. Are environmental concerns real or fabricated? Why is there such a conflict between conservative Christians and environmentalists? That's a big one. There is a big conflict. And because I've worked in the field, I have felt it. People judge me before I even get out the door because I work in the environmental field. Does the Bible provide guidance related to environmental matters? The answer is yes, but it's indirect. And what should Christian, the Christian response be to what is happening today? Now, there's a couple things I want to mention right off the bat before we get into some history that's pretty important for you to, to understand. When I say today, environmentalist, what I mean are the more hardcore environmentalists, the extremists, the advocates, the proponents for every new environmental thing there is. I'm not going to define that every time I say environmentalist, but that's what I mean. Those people who are kind of far over there, okay? But I don't want to have to repeat that every time. So that's what I'll, I'll be meaning. Another thing is, if you look in the Bible, you will not find the word environment. Nowhere. But you will find the word pollute. But it's funny the way the word pollute is used. It's used that the people can pollute the land because of their immoral behavior. And that was like the people who polluted the land before the conquest where Joshua led the people in. And you have to wonder, are we polluting our land right now in that way? Not so much because of chemicals and wastes and things, but because of immorality. That's the kind of word the Bible uses for pollute. Or people can be polluted by the ways of the world. So there's two ways pollute is used, but not in the traditional environment sense. And I just wanted to share that with you. Okay, the way I'm going to start this, and we'll come back to this concept. Remember I said there's a conflict between conservative Christians and environmentalists right now. And I'm going to give an overview, and a little later, I'm going to come back and tell you more specifically about some of these conflicts. First, we'll start with the church, us. What do we think of the problem of environmental problems, and what do we think of environmentalists? Now, this is a broad-brush perspective, and I'm sure everybody don't fit in this category, but this is pretty much defining the majority. The conservative Christian church, for the most part, thinks environmental problems are exaggerated and sometimes based upon bad science. That's, that's just an overview position. And what do the conservative Christian churches people think of environmentalists? Again, it's the hardcore people. They think they worship the creation instead of the creator. They, they wonder about their motives for what they're doing. And we'll talk more about that a little later. They think some of them are just misled, maybe they have been brainwashed, and that either they are deceptive or they've been deceived. Okay, the people who are on that side. That's that stress that exists when we look over to that other side. Now, looking from the environmentalist point of view, and I put two symbols up there, Earth Justice, they're hardcore. That's a, a group that sues for any reason they can to try to accomplish their purpose. The Sierra Club's a little more moderate, although they're pretty much supporting every new environmental law, too. They think the problems are serious and life-threatening, catastrophic, doomsday-type issues. And what do they think of conservative Christians? That they're deniers of science. They're stupid or dangerous. 
They have a desire to just fill and subdue. Because that's what the Bible tells us to do. And we'll come back to that verse and more thoroughly look at it. They think that we should do that rather than conserve. So, I mean, that's the overall images, and that's why there is conflict between the two groups that's out there. Now, you're going to have to bear with me. You're going to get a little bit of history, because to understand what our responsibility as Christians is, we need to know a little bit about what happened to get us here. Now, there are, are four historical causes of real environmental problems. And I want to emphasize real, because we're going to see today that some of the things that we're dealing with, I wouldn't put in that category as real or proven. Ignorance, that's one of the reasons why we have had environmental problems develop. People just didn't know any better. They dumped chemicals, they didn't control pollution coming out their stacks, stuff like that. Overpopulated areas, focus on area, not overpopulated world. The world can handle the population. But everybody crams into one spot, and then you can't handle it. Whether it's an air pollution thing, like in Southern California, where too many people tried to live in L.A., and the smog and the cars, and it just built up. Too many people in one spot compared to too many people in the whole world is a different question. Lack of technology. For many, many years, we didn't have the technology to do the right thing or control emissions, coming out stacks, going out water pipes, discharges, things like that. But sin is another reason why we have had environmental problems. And I'm going to focus a little bit on the sin question because it's so important to us. A couple of weeks or a few weeks ago, Mike taught that we are all descendants of Adam. And unfortunately, being a descendant of Adam, we all have inherited the sin nature. We have this propensity to sin. Paul in Romans talks a lot about that in chapter 3, saying that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He says no one is good, not even one is good in God's eyes. So sin happens. We all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we're a liar. We make God out to be a liar. So sin happens. And when sin happens, consequences result. And sometimes the consequences that result from sin are environmental messes. And I'm going to talk about a couple sins that can lead to environmental problems. This gives you a a fairly good list of sins that can lead to problems. Love of money may be the biggest, really, especially in the more modern world. People know it costs money to take care of environmental controls, to do things right. And some people would rather not spend that money to do it right. And so they have dumped waste, whether it's in a river or into the air, wherever else it goes. It's all greed. It's the love of money. That has been common throughout our time, and it still happens today. Selfishness, just caring about yourself and not your neighbor, can result in the same kinds of of problems resulting in the way you take care of your responsibility. Willful ignorance. The boss who just says to the guy he hires, I don't care what you do with this waste. Just get rid of it. Get it out of my hair. I don't even want to know what you're doing with it. 
Just get rid of it. I don't want to ever see it again. Don't tell me. Because if somebody asks, I don't want to know what happened to it. Lack of love and compassion by mismanaging the wastes that you produce, you can very easily be doing the opposite of loving your neighbor. Just in order to, whether it's to save money or whatever, you're not loving your neighbor if you are doing something with your waste products that harm your neighbor. That is not loving them. You could be stealing from them the same way. You can be lowering their property value by you doing something that impacts the value of their property. That's like stealing from them because it's been easier for you to deal with it that way. And then prejudice. There's a history of environmental, uh, well, let's say, again, mostly wastes or chemicals that are being dumped into minority neighborhoods, low-income neighborhoods, things like that. So there's, a, there's these sins, I'm sure there's more, too, that could lead to environmental problems. I'm going to fast forward to the 60s, and I am going to come back to the Bible. That's why I'm saying bear with me to get through some of this. Many, many years, this kind of thing happened. All these reasons that I gave you, not just the sinful reasons, these other reasons that, that were listed as well. But in the 60s is when this culminated. Everything accumulated and got worse and worse because our population grew, our industrial work grew, our productivity did, our rivers became pretty contaminated, and lakes and beaches. This picture up in the left-hand corner is a river called the Cuyahoga in Ohio that actually caught on fire because it was having so much floating oil on the river. That huge tire piles. One of the first jobs I had when I came to Kansas as a director of the Bureau of Waste Management was to clean up tire piles, and we had about 5 million tires in piles across the state. We had some that looked as bad as that, a couple in the state, and one had caught fire, and it really was a mess. It wasn't unusual, if you were a kid in the 60s, to see black smoke like this coming out of smokestacks. Nowadays, you young kids have never seen it. You don't know what it was like then. And there was all kinds of places where Hazardous chemicals that had been placed in 55-gallon drums were dumped. This Love Canal, some of you may be old enough to remember that story, but that was a low-income area where people had been impacted significantly. I could go on and on, but the bottom line is, by the time we got to the 60s, there were a lot of problems. It really was real. Like I was saying earlier, are there real problems? Well, they definitely existed in the 60s. Now, that transitioned a whole lot. But before the transition began, these kind of problems, there was an awakening. And there was an environmental movement that began in the 60s and 70s. And most people would say it started with a woman named Rachel Carson, who wrote a book called Silent Spring. And that book, really, though it had bad science in it, as we look back today, it awakened a lot of people. It talked about poisoning animals and things like that. Uh, by the chemicals we release in the environment. It was kind of an awakening, 1962, I believe it was. But, you know, the 60s was a rebellious time. We had the war protesters. We had the hippies. They grouped with the environmentalists. And by the end of the 60s, in 1970, they all came together and pressured uh, Congress 
to have this first Earth Day, and EPA formed as well during this same time period. So the movement occurred. Was the movement good or bad? Overall, at the time it was needed, it did some good, but it started us on a pathway that led to bad. Now the pendulum, I, I'm trying to explain now what happened. We were in this bad situation. If you look over on the left side of this, these problems I was just talking about, had, they were real, they existed. And then in the 70s and 80s, a lot of things happened, and I would call them reasonable. We needed new controls. We needed things to go into place that would take care of these problems that we could just look out and see. But the pendulum kept swinging past the reasonable and the practical and the appropriate. It swung all the way over to where in the 90s things began to change. And in the 90s is when we started moving away from what's reasonable to extreme. And it's really accelerated after we got past 2000. And now in the last several years, it's accelerated even more. And we're going to look at a little bit of that. This is where inappropriate motives have come started. And these inappropriate motives are so important in terms of driving things to the extreme situation. It be, has become more than just good objective science to take care of the problems. It's become almost a social policy. Environmentalists have got linked with the evolution people, with the social people who want to spread the wealth, and profiteering has become huge in the environmental movement. There are so many people who are making their m livings off environmental, the, the environmental kingdom, let's put it that way, that no one will want us to shift gears and go in a different direction. There are thousands of people in uh, different positions in government, universities, other kind of think tanks that depend solely on the next crisis of the day. And so they're really good at exaggerating the risks, brainwashing, blaming the wealthy, blaming the USA, trying to spread the wealth. It's hard to know what everyone's agenda is, but there's a lot of things occurring that are no longer pure motives. I want to just spend a little bit of time on a couple of the biggest problems that we're facing, but I would say that the environmental laws have really run wild since 2008. There was a growth that has occurred all the way from the late 90s in adding things that may or may not have been necessary, but it has gone crazy. And it's every week or every month there's a new thing coming out of Washington to try to add one more layer of environmental laws and regulations. This is demonstrated best by the war on coal and the global warming climate change issue. All of you are probably familiar with that. It's in the news all the time, whether there's something that relates to climate change. It's all about putting carbon in the air. And the biggest target is coal. And why is that so important? It's because we have been blessed in this country with huge amounts of coal resources, but it is disappearing as a resource that we're going to use. Little by little, they're, not, they're driving nails in the coffin of coal, whether it's air pollution regulations, water pollution, 
or waste management, the fly ash and other residues that come out of coal-burning power plants. It's just one thing after the next. Last week, I met with some people from the utility industry, and they told me that this war on coal, which is all based on global warming and climate change, because that's the main target, will cause two major things to happen. They said when all these rules end up getting in effect, the cost of your electricity is going to double. And they said of all the coal plants in the U.S., 42 they expect to close. They've actually made, because they can't comply with the standards, 42 coal plants, that is huge, that burn by coal plants, I mean electrical generating facilities that burn coal, are going to close. What is that going to do, not only to the cost of our electricity, but to our security, our power grid? Are we going to just depend on wind? Is that going to make the difference? I don't think so. But for some reason, the people who are pushing this don't seem to care, or perhaps it's even their goal. It's hard to say. But the war on coal is so real. And I can't go into the science of these today. It's not the time or place for that. But there are an awful lot of scientists who would contest whether or not the global warming climate change thing is something that we really should be making such policy on. Yesterday, in the news, the LA Times said they would ban all letters to the editor that are from climate change skeptics. I thought that was interesting. And there was another quote in that article that said, the religion of catastrophic global warming does not tolerate non-believers. So uh, I thought that was an interesting perspective. There are other things that we could talk about that are related to this, other regulations that are out of control, but I just list them here for you today. I do, I'll say one other thing, the war on drilling and fracking, the production of oil is also a big one that has the potential to affect our price of fuels and, and national security issues as well. Okay, so these things that I'm talking about have harmed humans. That's enough history. It wastes our money. It adds taxes and inflation. It, it hurts business development. Jobs are lost. I mentioned power failures possible because of what they're doing. And national security issues, loss of personal freedoms. I mean, these rules tell us what kind of light bulbs to burn, what kind of cars to drive, how you can use your own land and develop it. There's a lot of rules that are hurting us in this way. Okay, now we're going to get into the conflict issue a little bit more. When the 90s came, and we got away from what I would say are the more practical regulations, the conflict started growing. And, and one of the main areas of conflict, I would say, and what I'm calling the Romans 125 syndrome, and, and the verse is, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Environmentalists have a tendency towards idolatry, elevating the creation more than it should be elevated. They, you've all heard the term Mother Earth, and some of you may think innocently that doesn't really mean much, but yet it does to them because a lot of them actually believe the earth created us rather than God creating the earth. That we are a byproduct of whatever happened in the earth. That mother earth carries with it more than just a fun name that they use. It is pure idolatry. And Exodus 23 says we should have no other gods 
besides me, or God is saying that. This concept is pushed on our kids quite heavily in schools. There's other areas of conflict that I think are really important, where animals matter more than babies. And yeah, it's important to protect endangered species. We love these creatures. We love to see them. We don't want them to disappear. But we can responsibly address them and not elevate them beyond the baby in the womb. That it's okay to kill unborn babies, but if you kill one of these endangered species, that is such a terrible crime. Or even if some birds die in the wilderness because of an oil spill, you're guilty of huge crimes. But it's okay that 50 million babies have been killed in the womb since Roe versus Wade. Some other areas of conflict that are worth noting. Back to the animal issue. Animal rights is a big deal. You know, uh, Animals are just as valuable as people. In Luke 12, Jesus says, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. That doesn't sound like Jesus is saying we're all equal, that we all came through the evolutionary process, and that because of that, we are equivalent to the animals in terms of value. That doesn't agree with Jesus' remark there. Another comment, this is sort of extreme, but I have seen it more than once. Humans are like a cancer to the other life on earth. All we do is hurt it. Our presence harms other life. Well, let's think how that fits with some of these other verses that we have in Scripture. Genesis 1.27. Humans are created in God's image, fearfully and wonderfully made. That doesn't sound either like God is looking at us as a cancer or a plague on the earth. Another conflict area relates to this industrial development being so bad anywhere on the earth. Well, Genesis 1 and 2 tells us to fill the earth, subdue it, and work it. I'll come back to that verse in a minute. Last week, if you were here, you know that I spent a lot of time talking about the vastness of the universe and how it displays God's glory. And that we ended up by talking about how humanity occupies such a special place in this vast universe because Jesus came here to die, to walk among us and die on the cross. That's sort of the way we ended last week. So we're pretty special because of that. Now, where do we take that? Where do we take that idea of our specialness? Well, in the environmentalist idea, we take it way too far. But we see that God's amazing love for us to come here, die for us, and that we're created in his image. And we have this Genesis 128 verse that says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, in the sea, and the birds in the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. That combined, these statements by God's word about how special we are, created in his image, and this command to fill, increase, subdue, and our disagreements and all these other areas of conflict I just talked about with the environmentalists could cause us to sort of reject some of our responsibility, put up walls, behave inappropriately. But we shouldn't. That's not what God's word tells us. 
to behave that way. We shouldn't swing too far back the other way on the pendulum, or we shouldn't try to, or at least say, we're not part of that swinging pendulum. We're way back on the other side still. No, I don't think that's what God's plan for us is from a responsibility perspective. When we look at Christian responsibility, we really start and and go to Genesis 2.15. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Well, there's two commands here, really. Work it, and I see that as trying to be productive, to try to get it to produce something that would be good for people, for your family. Work what he has blessed us with. And take care of it means protect it, preserve it for those who come next. When we combine that verse with this verse from Psalms 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, well, we see that the Lord owns it. It's all his. And yet we're told to work it, take care of it, and let it produce. In combination, these two verses assign us to be God's steward of what he has created. It's his, but we're placed here to work it and take care of it. Stewardship is a really important concept in Scripture, but it does have to be the way you would interpret what these verses mean. So when we start looking at putting all this together and looking at what our biblical responsibility is, we really got to think about balance. We've got the one side that tells us, be a good steward, take care of God's creation, just as we take care of whether it's wealth or whatever, we're taking care of the creation. But at the other end, he's saying, use it, fill it, rule it. You are my manager. You're the one who is going to decide how to use this. These things should be balanced properly. But even when we look at this balance, we've got to add probably the most important other scriptures to this. And here are a couple other scriptures that can indirectly be considered when we look at our Christian responsibility for stewardship. We already talked about the idea of loving your neighbor. Uh, Right at the beginning, we said that one of the sins that could cause problems would be that you are not loving your neighbor as yourself. And that could result in some damage or harm to your neighbor with respect to environmental concerns. You could harm them by dumping. Let's say you have somebody living downstream from you and you live on a little river or creek, you dump something in there and you may harm their water supply, you may harm their property value because it just flows down to them and they're gonna experience what you dumped. That's not loving your neighbor as yourself. The whole idea of loving your neighbor should stop us from doing things that are harmful to them from an environmental point of view. And then Paul takes it further in Philippians 2, where he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to each of you to the interest of the other. If we're looking out for our neighbor's interests, that is loving them. So these go hand in hand together. We need to consider what we're doing, how it may hurt someone else from this Christian responsibility point of view. So really, to sum it all up, I've got this list of Christian responses 
to what I will call today's environmental extremism. We've got to have a balanced approach to this whole thing. And it begins with really obedience to God. God did give us directives on how we should respond in terms of taking care of his creation. That's the Genesis 2 passage that we looked at primarily. And then loving one another. We just talked about what that means. If we really love our neighbor, we will do nothing that harms them. And there's a lot of ways to harm when it comes to environmental practices. Discernment. I'm going to combine discernment and wisdom here because they go so much together. We need to pray for wisdom on these issues that come to us through the media, through new stories that we are hearing daily almost on some new environmental rules and regulations. We've got to discern, is this something that is right or wrong, or is this something that we should stand and resist? And how would you resist? If you see something that you just don't believe is right, you've studied it, you believe something needs to be done, well, you, who are you in what kind of position to be able to do something? Well, these are government rules and regulations, and so we need to contact our government leaders if we think something has gone too far, if it is harming us individually, our businesses, our nation. We really need to do something to influence those leaders because they're the only ones who can change. We can stand and oppose, and we need to protect our family. We have, if we have kids at home that are young, they're going to be hearing these messages constantly. We need to protect their minds. They're, they're, some of them are going to fear because of what they hear. They're going to be wondering, are the polar ice caps going to melt? Is the ocean going to rise? Are we going to... They just watched the movie that looks like because of climate change, all these bad things are going to happen. We need to talk to them about these and try to make sure that they understand what is really the risk or what is not. And there is always the possibility that some of these rules are going to impact us more than just in our thoughts and mind. It could actually impact us from a security point of view. Are we going to have the electricity we need? Is it going to impact our ability to produce food? There's a lot of things happening that you just can't imagine that are out there on a daily basis, people coming up with new things to try to justify their existence and make their next paycheck. So this sounds sort of negative, and we could take it negative in different ways. It could take away our joy. This whole message could steal our joy. It could steal our joy because maybe we are being deceived and believing some messages that are not true about how catastrophic the future events are going to be. So we're worried about that, and that would steal our joy. Or it could steal our joy because we are so resentful about the environmental movement that we start developing hatred and anger towards the people that are pushing this kind of thing in our society, and that'll steal our joy. It's not much different, really, than some of the other issues that the church struggles with whether it's the gay marriage issue or, or various entertainment issues that we disagree so strongly with. And if you're like me and you watch too much uh, cable news, you sometimes 
feel depressed because you're hearing too much of this stuff. The environmental issues are like that, too. Even though things have gotten so much better, I don't think we have to worry about catastrophe. But the message would have you believe otherwise, that you would hear in the media, that they keep having to add one more layer of regulations on top of what they've already done with very little benefit coming. So really, given that, is that what God wants for us? Does he want our joy being stolen by these issues of the day? I don't think so. He wants us to look to him and not to these worldly issues. He doesn't want us to not be active and try to improve things, but he doesn't want us to dwell on these issues so that it steals our joy and steals away the promises that he has made for us that we can rest in and have peace in and have joy in. This environment that we live in, as much as we have responsibility to take care of it, is all going to pass away. God's word tells us that the current heavens and earth are going to be destroyed by fire. Now, we don't know when that's going to happen, maybe way down the road, way after we're long gone, but it may be in our own lifetimes. Nobody knows, but this environment's going to go. We're going to live with God forever if we've trusted in him in the new heaven and earth. And that's the promise that we can look forward to because we know Jesus. We've accepted him as our Lord and Savior. So, yeah, we have responsibility here, and we should stand up to it. We have a responsibility to learn and make decisions and talk to our families, talk to our leaders. But we shouldn't let that steal our joy. And that's where I'd like to end this today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, your word that even though sometimes it doesn't give us a real direct and clear answer to every cultural issue of the day, if we search it, we know that you give us the general guidelines that we need to be able to discern what is going on and how we should respond as Christians. Thank you, Lord, for your word that is uh, truth that we can turn to in every circumstance. And Lord, thank you for this body of believers and pray, Lord, that you would put all their minds at rest and peace regarding this issue and other cultural issues of the day that could cause us to just fear or become angry. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.